Hello listeners, my name is Dr. Jody Madiri, and I'm a board-certified psychiatrist, a former TV producer, and your host of this podcast entitled The Telepsychiatrist. In each episode, you'll get a front-row seat to interviews with patients and experts to help you better understand the psychiatric experience. Whether you're a healthcare provider, patient, or simply curious, stick around for the challenges and victories in mental health. Now, here's this week's interview. Today, we are going to talk about acute stress disorder, which is closely related, but not nearly as known as its counterpart, PTSD, or post-traumatic stress disorder. And we will be talking with a dear patient of mine, Karen. However, this traumatic episode was not the circumstances that Karen and I met under. So I'd like to welcome and invite Karen to join us and tell us how we initially started treatment together. Welcome, Karen. I began working with Dr. Madiri largely because, well, I had been depressed before in my life. I dealt with depression. But in February of 2021, my husband was diagnosed with dementia. And that just threw me for an incredible loop. And this was happening at the time of uh, COVID. So finding both psychological and psychiatric support was a struggle. It took a while to find Dr. Madiri, and I'm very, very glad I did. So we were working through the stages of adapting, of my adapting, to what was going on in my life with my husband's situation. Yeah, and you were really his main caregiver or caretaker at the time. And just kind of reminds me to to remember that caretaker fatigue and caretaker burnout are real. And that's sort of some of the topics we had been discussing when we first met. And we will have to surely do an episode about that. So stay tuned. (laughs) What was it like being the caretaker for your husband after so many years of marriage? Yeah, we've been married now 56 years. And both Richard and I are college teachers or had been college teachers, were now retired. And the diagnosis was, it didn't, it did not bother him nearly as much as it bothered me in terms of moving into the caretaker role and adjusting to what we finally found ahead of us. It just was overwhelming. It it truly was. Anyone who is, is facing that adjustment really needs to find support in so many ways, not only a good therapist, but also a group of friends and support and family. The Alzheimer's Association has a support line that you can dial at any time, which I used a couple of times when things just seemed totally out of my control. And I did not have any idea of how I was going to handle the next 10 minutes, much less the rest of what looked like my life at that point. It's good so, advice, Karen. Yeah, it was absolutely necessary to me. I remember one Friday evening, basically calling the uh, Alzheimer's group and talking with them because I was so out of control and depressed. And so then the, the, the woman who I was talking with said, well, what are you going to do now? And I said, well, I'm going to get my husband. We're going to go down to the pub. And she said, you know, that's a very resilient suggestion <laughs> that you actually are going to do something. And I, I'm sobbing, but I was able to do that. So it was It was a life source for me, really, in terms of being able to reach out to somebody and have them say, yeah, what you're going through is hard. One of the things that I found extremely useful is a group of people who have spouses with dementia, different stages, have kind of formed. And we meet, you know, get together maybe once a week. 
And that's just valuable because, that, you know, most of the time we don't talk seriously about anything, just check on each other and then basically laugh. That's great. And we'll put that link um, in the show notes for anybody else going through this. Could you yeah. give us an example of what things were like before and then what happened, you know, after the diagnosis? The way I would describe it is that Rich and I were equal partners. We always were. So making decisions was always a, a question of talking things over to some degree, small decisions, big decisions. The biggest change almost immediately, and I, it's something that is progressing, is that that I, I no longer can count on him in terms of big decisions or even small decisions. And it's very lonely and very isolating. If this has been a kind of a partnership relationship for that long, it becomes really difficult to adjust to the fact that asking for input not going to produce any kind of lasting lasting impression upon the person you're talking to. That doesn't mean he can't give me input. Frequently he does, but then has forgotten the whole issue by the time it comes up again. So that, well, today we just aren't, we're coming back and, you know, he had forgotten. He bought one cup of coffee when we picked up the newspaper and then another cup of coffee at the place we went to eat. And we got in the car. He said, why do I have two cups of coffee? And I explained it. And we got into the driveway and he looked down again. Why do I have two cups of coffee? By the time we got into the kitchen and he said, why do we have two cups of coffee? I said, well, I can explain it again. (laughs) So even when you explain things, they're not there. And that's, again, this is a, a brilliant man. I've, you know, known all my life and to suddenly not have to have to get down to the level of saying, okay, you bought this cup of coffee when you picked it and then you forgot and you bought another cup of coffee. It can be heartbreaking. What I found myself doing, and I think this is a real key to adjustment, is saying, oh, okay, we're going to go around this park again and laughing about it, as opposed to saying, oh, my God, I've lost the person who knew that he bought a cup of coffee. I think that was an excellent example. And the first thing that ran through my head is the level of patience that that requires is just astounding. I I appreciate that there are times when you can laugh about it. And I'm sure there are the heartbreaking times too. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. After, I guess, several months of us working together, I received a phone call from Karen that she was in an accident and in the hospital. And we had a session right there, Karen in the hospital bed (laughs) through Zoom. (laughs) So tell me what that was like for you. And then if you could I'd like you to kind of recount the details of your accident, but the only reason I want you to do that is because you've told me before that the retelling of events has been therapeutic for you. We were headed west on a highway, and the other driver, the the pickup driver, did not stop at a stop sign and turned into our lane. She was actually going east but she turned into the westbound lane. Our driver swerved the car over to avoid a head-on collision. Bless her heart, we'd have all been dead if we did a head-on. And the driver of the pickup lost control of her car and then impacted the side of our car. There were four of us in the car. A friend was driving. Richard was sitting in the passenger seat. I was behind the driver, and a second friend of mine was next to me behind Richard. So our driver smelled something burning and got out, but then could not get the rest of us out because the the doors on on the passenger side had been blocked. So 
what the upshot was is that passersby came and helped Richard get out, except he was complaining about his neck and his back. And so they made him sit back down because they weren't sure that he should be moving. They helped me out, but I thought my leg was broken. It was incredible pain. And they lifted me out, two of them. And so they moved me to the side of the road and I was sitting on a guardrail so they could get to the friend whose head had hit the, the glass. By then, EMTs had arrived and the police had arrived. We ended up life-flighting the, the head-injured person to uh, Kansas City. So all four of us ended up in ER. They diagnosed me with a dislocated hip and five fractured ribs. The head-injured person was obviously the most seriously injured. I was the second. The driver had bruises and contusions, and Richard had whiplash and back back injuries from all that had gone on and it was bad enough that for the next six to eight weeks he was constantly in pain i was then admitted to the hospital they had to reposition my leg so we had to have 24 7 care for rich my daughter flew in from new york with her husband to help out first reaction that i had was this heroic it was wonderful i was on top of everything and i could talk about it and whatever and i'd say probably about 10 days in i was just in absolute distress tears, crying, whatever. And my primary care physician came to see me and gave me advice. And that proved to be very helpful. I think it was like 15 days that they finally released me from the hospital. You were in a very severe motor vehicle accident. And you mentioned that initially you felt somewhat heroic. Yeah, that mm -hmm. we had all survived. I could hear the driver talk. I could feel rich and realize he was alive. And I looked over to my other friend and saw that she was breathing. So uh, that we had all survived, that we were all breathing, whatever else happened, we, we had made it through. I, I would say that the survival endorphins, if there are such a thing, were kicking in. <laughs> oh, okay, I'm alive. Hey, what, what more can I ask for? And then that lasted maybe a, a little short of a week. And then came the plunge into, oh, my Lord, you know, what, what has happened to me? What has happened to us? We're not all going to be the same. We're not all going to be what we were before this accident that was totally out of our control. Thank you for telling me again, Karen, about the details of the accident and letting our audience know how powerful and traumatic that situation was. You know, when a trauma occurs, some people automatically assume that they have a traumatic disorder. But really, that doesn't have to be the case. Because being exposed to the traumatic event is only part of the story. You actually have to have nine or more symptoms that occur in five different categories that cause you significant distress or dysfunction, you know, at home or in your job. So bear with me. I'm going to go through these five categories and then we're going to talk about it and how it applied to you. The first one is intrusion symptoms. So that's recurring, involuntary, distressing memories of the event. So for example, nightmares or flashbacks. Negative mood, number two, is a, you know, a persistent inability to experience positive emotions. Number three, dissociative symptoms, feeling separated from a sense of reality. 
an inability to remember important aspects of the events, almost like gaps in the memory as well. Number four is avoidance symptoms. So those are efforts to avoid anything related to the event. So not only internally avoiding it or not thinking about it, but external avoidance, like not going down a certain street in a neighborhood where, you know, maybe an accident occurred. And the fifth category is arousal symptoms. So for example, you will have sleep disturbance, irritability or anger outbursts with no real trigger, hypervigilance, which I describe to my patients as like when someone walks behind you and you feel on high alert and difficulties with concentration and then an exaggerated startle response. So to have a traumatic disorder, you need to have nine or more of those symptoms. That's the textbook version. How does this apply to you? What happened with you? I'm to just say bingo. I was writing them down as you were talking. They're all very familiar to me. After, again, that after about a week, I began to experience flashbacks when I was awake, nightmares when I was asleep that were just very, very, very difficult. I certainly had a negative mood. Nothing is ever going to be the same. We're, you know, what did we survive for? In fact, life is going to be pretty crappy from here on in. Everything has changed in terms of my life. Disassociative in the sense that I was basically cutting off the two that you mentioned at the end, the avoidance. At first I thought, oh no, that wasn't me, that was the driver. And then you talked about not going down the street and I'm going, oh yeah, that's me. I have not gone down it and I have no intention to go down it. Someday I will, but right now, no. And arousal, definitely. But yeah, and hypervigilance, I'm very, very easy to startle. You know, it, 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 so that when we're driving and Rich says something, you know, it's like that, I come off the seat. They're all getting a little bit better. Some are, are gone. The night, I'm no longer on the medication and the nightmares and the flashbacks have stopped. Thank you. I was reviewing some of my notes, you know, when this happened and... You had told me, probably interesting to hear now in the future, but to speak to the negative mood, you were telling me that you felt so disconnected and out of touch. And you were speaking in a way which I know you have stated you had depression in the past, but you were speaking in a way that wasn't really familiar to me in in our relationship so far. And you, Mm -hmm. you weren't sure that you wanted a future and you felt as though there wasn't a reason to do anything, which is stark from, you know, the Karen before the accident. So, you know, and it got to a point and correct me if I'm wrong, where you were feeling suicidal. Yes, I was definitely. Yeah. Those notes are interesting because it does bring it back. Yeah. There was definitely a point again, after the heroic where I, there's just no point in this. Again, it was coupled certainly with Richie's diagnosis, but the accident itself just kind of it, it took away all agency, all control from me. And I felt like, okay, there's absolutely no point because I'll never be able to do anything again. And why not take what seems like the easy way out of this, you know, which is basically not to do anything anymore, to, not to be. I've been fairly lucky in my suicidal thoughts. They tend to be not active, which is a blessing. If they ever get active, you're getting a call in the middle of the night. But <laughs> 
you know, I'm never thinking in terms of how to do that. It's more in terms of, I just want it to be over. It's not like I'm sitting and planning, you know, how to go about this. One of the people asked me at one point, well, what is your plan for suicide? I said, my plan for suicide is to admit myself into the second floor of the unit, the psychological unit to stop myself from doing that. So at that point, we had spoke on the phone, you had met with social work in the hospital, and you and your family and everyone decided it would be a good idea to have you admitted to the inpatient mental health unit. So tell our audience, was the inpatient experience like what you see in the movies? No. (laughs) I don't know what movie, you know, one flew over the Cougar's Nest or wherever you're going to go with it. But no, it was not. It was it was very caring. I was surprised by a lot of of things, but to have no responsibilities for myself. You know, people fed me. They helped me get a a shower or a bath, which was wonderful because I couldn't get one at home because it was up on the second floor. I I attended, I think, as many group sessions as I could. I wasn't dealing with a nurse ratchet or somebody who was trying to make me into something I wasn't. It was a, a, a very helpful, actually. I'm so happy to hear that. And of course, a shout out to all the incredible people who are caring for patients on the inpatient unit. Now, in PTSD... The symptoms we were talking about need to last for at least one month. So at this point in time, just, you know, a week after the accident, I assured you, you were not there yet. And we might not ever be there. Instead, I explained that this would be considered acute stress disorder in which the symptoms are the same as PTSD, but the duration of symptoms is different. Acute stress disorder, symptoms occur for a duration of three days to one month after the traumatic event. And in PTSD, it would occur for one month or greater than one month. Do you remember having that conversation? Yes, I do very much. What were your thoughts about the distinction between those two? I have to tell you, I'd never heard of acute stress disorder. So when you brought up acute stress disorder, it really was an eye-opener. Why do you think such a thing as acute stress disorder even exists? What purpose do you think it would serve? The reason why I'm asking you is because I sort of went through this journey myself, this sort of thought journey where I said, well, why not just call everything PTSD? Did you ever think about why there would be two distinctive disorders? What you're talking about is that PTSD, like when it's applied, for example, to the, the war veterans, is something that is long-lasting and that they're still experiencing these acute symptoms years and years later. Whereas in my case, I could identify with every one of them back in the acute stage, and now probably not so much so. Kind of the conclusion I was coming to, too, you know, for one, uh, the acute stress disorder gives you something to label and it does sort of explain that a reaction to such trauma can be almost considered normal in this particular time period. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I agree. Yeah, so almost we can expect how trauma can play out for us. And what you were experiencing wasn't something out of left field. Sometimes a person with acute stress disorder feels guilty 
excessive guilt, that they should have reacted or responded better, or even guilt that they survived the event. Is this something that you relate to? I I think it comes into play in my situation with the case of the person who had the head injuries. I walked out of our house to get in the car, and my friend, who was seated behind Richard, said, well, I'll move over. And I said, oh, no, don't worry about it. I'll go to the other side. So, again, it's like an instant, a normal reaction. Suddenly you look at it and think, well, boy, did I, you know, am I responsible for the fact that I'm walking away with a, a dislocated hip and five ribs broken, but I'm not in the shape that my friend is in. There was a conversation about the person with the head injuries because she'd been comatose for 10 days and they were beginning to talk about whether they should pull the plug or not. And the driver said, if she can have relations with her grandchildren and and be with friends, she's going to be happy. And she did come out of the coma and is happy. She's in assisted living. She's not what she was before. But we're in the process of saying, okay, that's acceptable. She's accepted it. And sort of, it's, it's, I hate to say this, but it's sort of like what I went through with Rich. You know, Rich accepted it. Again, I don't know that he understands it, but he accepted it. And I had to work my way through to accepting where he is. It seems as though the people who in your life have been injured or going through their own sort of trauma accepted it. And you're kind of working your way through accepting it as well. Like everything else, it's a process. I don't think you, you know, you wake up and go, yeah, I'm done now. I've accepted it. I never have to worry about it again. That's just not the way it works. So, yeah, it's it's something that you find yourself doing in little ways every day. Thank you, Karen. Approximately half of people who are diagnosed with acute stress disorder will go on to develop PTSD. And we're approximately six months out after the accident, and many of your symptoms have resolved. So what was helpful for you in healing from the acute stress? Or in other words, why do you think your experience didn't progress into PTSD? I think a couple of things. I think admitting myself to the behavioral care unit was one of the smartest things I could have done. I think that the counseling that I got there, I think the fact that I was in touch, both you and a counselor before this happened, so that I did have some resources to fall back on. For me, being able to tell the story of the event was very therapeutic. Now I can pretty much talk about it, certainly without crying, and it's helpful. The other thing I found very helpful, and this was something that was I was able to do up in the behavioral health unit, was I suddenly had time to write it all out. And I have a notebook that's like 25 pages that I wrote just continuously about the accident and what I experienced while I was still thinking about it. And that helps me because there are times now that I don't know, you know, what happened when, but I've got that thing that I put together that I can go back to and say, well, this is what I saw, or this is what I heard. And so, or this is what I felt, or this is what I felt. Yes, definitely. So it gives me something that is somewhat concrete. Again, it wouldn't have to be necessarily writing, you know, tape recording, something that gives you a base that you can go back to that once you begin to, first of all, it helps to resolve it by actually putting it in some kind of permanent form. It allows me to reflect on it. 
So I think those were, you know, really crucial. One of the things that I have learned through Rich's situation is that it is terribly, terribly difficult to take care of yourself, especially as a caretaker. You know, there's just so much that can get in the way of taking care of yourself. And what the aftermath and the, the acute stress disorder did for me was it put me in a situation where I had to take care of myself. And that became really an important, an important as to why this isn't going on, or I don't feel that it's going on now, that I, I am able to talk about it without flashing back or having nightmares or sleep disorders or whatever. And, and I would say this regardless of, of whether you have an acute incident or not, any caretaker out there you need to take care of yourself. And if that means getting out of the house once in a while, you know, find a way to do it. There are ways. There are always ways for you to get help for yourself, but you have to be able to do it. So we've known each other now for about nine months. How do you feel like the work has been? First of all, it gave me a name to put to what I was going through. That was very, very helpful. It allowed me to think that this was something that was survivable. The meetings that we've had have helped me see what things seem to be working best for me in terms of moving in the direction I want to go. They've also been a safe place to explore some emotions that I don't just generally throw out there. The necessity of having a safe place to go with some of the feelings that I have and have had with regard to the the accident has been absolutely invaluable. What information would it be helpful to know for anybody who's going through this kind of traumatic event right now? First of all, listen to your gut. If it's telling you you're not doing well, you're not doing well. Secondly, don't be ashamed to get help. Don't be afraid of what other people are going to think. At this point, it's like you're drowning. And the fact that somebody is throwing you a life jacket. You don't want to stop and think about whether or not you can put the life jacket on. You need the life jacket. Get it on. Find the help you need. You deserve to be taken care of. You've survived something that's pretty traumatic. You need to be able to put the pieces together because they've been shattered. You may not know that, but they've been shattered. Yeah. Great point. Karen, thank you so much for sharing your story. I hope that this will be invaluable for other people listening, and I know that it will. I Uh, hope so. Yeah, I know you've been through it quite a bit, and I'm really happy with all the progress and hard work because you've been really working hard to live the life that you want to live right now. So I'm really proud of you. you. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. You've been listening to The Telepsychiatrist, a podcast designed to demystify and humanize the psychiatric experience. Head over to our website at thetelepsychiatrist.org to subscribe, join our newsletter, and give feedback where we guarantee a reply to each message received. Thank you for joining The Telepsychiatrist. This is Dr. Jody Medeiros signing off. See you next show.